Hello, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. Great to have you with me. If this is your first time, if you've just downloaded this podcast or clicked on one of the links you've seen somewhere, great to have you along. Uh, Make sure you go across and subscribe to The Painful Truth. That way it'll be sent to your inbox every week, usually on a Tuesday, uh, with both the text version of this material and a link just to listen to the version as you're currently doing. And the place to find all this material is thepainfultruth.online. I've got a new URL that's a bit easier to say and to remember. The Painful Truth, spelt in that awful dad joke sort of way, The Painful Truth. Dot online. Just go there and you'll be able to subscribe to get these emails and this podcast every week. Well, in recent times, it seems like dictionaries have gotten to the habit of giving out awards for the word of the year. And I guess this provides motivation for all those other words that missed out uh, to try harder next year. And it also gives the dictionary companies an opportunity to parade their social conscience. Uh, Recent winners of the word of the year from various dictionaries include climate emergency, which is two words, but apparently qualifies as a word of the year. Toxic, I'm assuming as in toxic masculinity. Cancel culture. And they, um, that is, they used as a non-gendered singular pronoun, which certain people have apparently taken to calling themselves. And I'm guessing that 2020 will have plenty of candidates. Pandemic. Social distancing, I suspect, might win, or even possibly Black Lives Matter. These are all obvious favourites for 2020. Or possibly Unprecedented, which uh, has been used at unprecedented levels, uh, in my observation. But my way of tenuously working from this introduction into the rest of today's episode is to suggest that essential will be one of the phrases or words of the year in 2020, as in essential services. The various privations and difficulties of lockdown have all forced us to pause and consider what really is essential, what matters. When severe limits are placed on what you can or should do, what essential things must be done. And of course, this has been true of churches particularly. We've all had to consider how to retrieve as many essential services as possible, given that nearly everything we do normally has been taken away from us, is no longer possible. And now, as many churches around the world start on the first tentative steps back towards some degree of normality, it's an excellent time to reconsider what normal essentially is. And this is not only because we still have limitations placed on us for some time to come and we'll have some tricky choices to make, but it's because as the coronavirus lockdown should have taught us, We always have limited resources and opportunities, and we always have tricky choices to make about what is essential and what is peripheral. And perhaps the COVID-19 crisis has brought that to the front of mind. And so for many of us, restarting church is a chance to reboot church, to consider what existing essential things we must absolutely put back in place, what new essential things we might now take the opportunity to to launch or to start, and what possibly non-essential services or non-essential activities or priorities we might quietly allow to remain in shutdown and not start up again. And so how should we think this through? Following on from my post a couple of weeks ago on pragmatism, we need to think this through with a conscious reflection on our principles, 
not just on an unprincipled kind of approach towards what we think will work or be most effective, but bringing our principles to the surface and especially reflecting on what the Bible itself directs us to think about as essential for our churches. And that's what I'd like to do over the next few episodes, to go back to Scripture, back with the posture of an apprentice, and have a crack at laying out what the essential principles are that should guide church ministry. Now, I'm sure I won't get it all completely right or even complete, especially not in this fairly brief space. And I'm equally sure that you'll be able to think of other good ways to express some of the principles that I express. But I hope in doing this, and hopefully doing it from an angle you're not quite expecting, I'll stimulate you to think about your own version of these essential principles more clearly, and thereby be better equipped to consider what is essential and what is non-essential as we restart church post-coronavirus. So where to start? Well, our instinct is, I think, to start with what or with how. That is, what are the essential things we should be doing? What essential activities or programs or events should we put on? And that we should get up and running as soon as possible. And how can we do them in the most effective way possible? What and how are the common questions that we instinctively start with. But it's much better to start with why, with the essential why we are doing things, because what and how always flow from why. The reason or purpose we have for doing something generates particular aims or goals, and those in turn lead us to think about how we will achieve those aims most effectively, with what particular activities or resources or actions. But it starts with why. It starts with the reason or purpose that we're doing something. So why are we churching? What reasons or purposes shape the whole enterprise of church, provide it with meaning and direction, and direct whatever particular strategies or activities that we decide to undertake. Now, the why of church, the essential why, comes, of course, from God, who gathers his people together. And remember, church is one of those Christian jargon words. It basically means to assemble or to gather. And you could describe the whole story of the Bible as the story of God scattering people and then gathering them of him scattering his people in judgment. And you can think of all the way back to Adam and Eve being driven out from the garden and Cain being driven away. Uh, you can think of the Tower of Babel or the scattering of Israel to the nations. Scattering is normally an act of judgment in Scripture. But then in his grace and his power and his might, God gathers his chosen, redeemed people back around himself. Salvation, often in the Bible, is gathering. And the why of the gathering or the church really is one of the big stories of Scripture, if not the story of Scripture. And many of the Bible's major events and themes and are really milestones on the way towards this ultimate purpose of God, to gather his scattered people around himself. Take Sinai, for example. Big event. Mount Sinai, the gathering of God's people there after the Exodus. When God brought his redeemed people to the rock at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, and spoke to them uh, on the mountain out of the midst of the fire, as it says, that event is described as the day of the church. 
described quite frequently in Deuteronomy as that, the day of the assembly or the congregation. It's also how Stephen describes it in Acts 7, if you might remember, Acts 7.38. The redemption out of Egypt generated a congregation, generated a, a church, which assembled at Sinai. And there God spoke to his people and they responded to him in fear, in earnest protestations of obedience, and eventually in gross apostasy and idolatry, but that's Israel for you. So the church at Sinai was the great first church, in a way, of Scripture, the, the day of the assembly. But Deuteronomy also speaks of another assembly, another place of gathering still to come, the place that God will appoint in the promised land that will be the divine assembly point for Israel, where they'll come together and meet with him. You find this in Deuteronomy 12. And that place, of course, turns out to be Jerusalem or Zion, the city where God causes his name and presence to dwell and from which he withdraws his presence eventually in judgment as the sad, sinful history of Israel unfolds. But Jerusalem or Zion is the gathering point for the nation. That is, before they're once more scattered among the nations and God once more promises to gather them again and the prophets promises to gather them out of the countries where you're scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, as Ezekiel 20.34 puts it. Scattering and gathering. And all this scattering, gathering purpose of God comes to a, a magnificent climax, of course, with the coming of Jesus. And possibly to its climax in the Gospels in Matthew 16, where in verse 18 of that chapter, Jesus famously declares that at this rock, I will build my church or my congregation. Now, this verse is a very controversial one, of course, and it has a few complexities to it. Uh, complexity number one is, who is the rock? Is it Peter himself? Or is it Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ? Or is it Christ himself, the rock, as the object of that confession? Well, that's one complexity. The second one is, what does the slightly unusual construction of at this rock mean. And as I speak, I hear a bell going past outside. I suspect that's the Mr. Whippy van selling ice cream. Um, just as an aside, I had a good friend who used to tell his children that whenever the Mr. Whippy van, the ice cream van, was playing a music or playing a tune or a bell, that meant he was out of ice cream, which I think is one of the cruelest things I've ever heard a father say to their children, but that's by the by. Back to complexity number two of Matthew 16, 18, what does the slightly unusual construction that I've just suggested there at this rock mean? And for those of you who are Greek nerds, what's going on here is that there's a little a preposition epi in Greek followed by the dative case, which is not what we expect there. Uh, it's usually rendered in English versions as upon this rock or on this rock, because that's what you normally do with rocks when you're building. You build on them. But the Greek construction actually means something more like at or before this rock. And given the rich biblical history of the church that takes place at or before the rock, that's the rock of Mount Sinai or Horeb, it seems that this is what Jesus might be referring to and why Matthew records this unexpected phrase, at or before this rock. Just as on the day of the church at Mount Sinai at Horeb, so Jesus will build his congregation, his assembly, not at an earthly rock with its thunderous revelation of the law, 
but around the rock of his own redeeming presence and work as the eternal word of God. Now, this way of reading Matthew 16 as a reference back to the church at Mount Sinai and as Jesus fulfilling that purpose in his own church, his own assembly, I owe it to Broughton Knox, and I'll give you the reference to that a bit later. But I think Broughton got it from Hebrews 12 because Hebrews 12 makes precisely this connection. It regards the heavenly church of Jesus Christ, the joyful assembly of the firstborn gathered in joyful and festal assembly, as the counterpart and fulfilment of the terrifying church at Sinai. And this is the church to which we have now come and from which Jesus now speaks to and warns his people. This is in Hebrews 12, 22 to 25. And it's interesting that this, in fact, was one of D.B. Knox's chief contentions about the nature of church in the New Testament and the doctrine of church. Not that the local congregation was the central reality, although this is what I think he's sometimes been thought to have taught, but that the church of the New Testament is chiefly and first of all heavenly. That Jesus is gathering to himself a redeemed people who are united to him and with him spiritually, crucified with him and raised now with him in the heavenly places. The fundamental New Testament church is the heavenly church. And this is the church that the seer of Revelation reveals to us as he draws back the curtain in those extraordinary visions of the heavenly reality that will one day descend to the earth in a new creation. And in those visions, he sees a great multitude assembled before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's in Revelation 7, of course. And this picture of a heavenly eschatological assembly, an assembly that is gathered around Jesus spiritually and heavenly now, and will one day be a, a visible reality in this creation, in the new creation. This assembly or church that Jesus has created through his death and resurrection is now building. This is the ultimate purpose of God in Jesus Christ. And it's from this ultimate purpose, this big why, that our local earthly congregations find their reason to exist. The rationale and purpose of everything we do locally in our local churches and beyond those churches, in our communities and in our witness beyond them. The rationale for everything that we do is to participate in the building work of the church that we're part of, the heavenly church, the church that God is building in and through his Son and through his Spirit, gathering his people into the heavenly, eternal congregation of Jesus, who is the Christ. And this is a bit of a change of focus for many of us. We, quite understandably, I guess, see the growth of our local church as the key purpose of church. And we're busy organising that building work to take place in the best way we can. And it is certainly true that building work takes place in our local churches and beyond them. And that we're called to participate in that faithfully and wisely and well. But it is strange how silent the New Testament is on the growth of the local church. Hardly ever speaks about local churches growing. It rarely speaks of it. But it does constantly speak of something bigger, of the growth of the gospel all over the world, as Colossians 1.6 puts it, 
or the growth and maturation of this cosmic body of Christ in the heavenly places, with Jesus as its head, far above all rule and authority and power. Um, kind of channeling Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 there. And so the big why of church is that it is the glorious purpose of God for Jesus to build his church in the heavenly places. And that ultimate purpose generates more proximal or immediate purposes for us, both in our local congregations and beyond them. It drives us to seek certain things, certain outcomes, I guess, and to engage in certain actions or activities to achieve those things. But it gives our desire for growth in our local churches a, a revitalised rationale and focus. We need to view all our local intermediate purposes and the activities we engage in in light of this cosmic heavenly purpose of God in Christ. I guess you could say it's think cosmic, act local. And in next week's post, we'll tease out what that means and what it looks like, once again by apprenticing ourselves to Scripture. And next time it will be to dig into and swim around in the extraordinary letter of Paul to the Ephesians, because that's what Paul does in Ephesians. He applies this cosmic plan of God to build the body of Christ. He applies that extraordinary plan to the realities of life and ministry in a local congregation and beyond it as well. And we'll come back to that next time on The Painful Truth. Well, thanks for being with me for today's episode. We've only really just started to scratch the surface of the big why of church and how that generates smaller and more specific purposes for us in our church ministries. But come back next time and we'll dig into that further. If you want to chase any further some of the things I referred to today, Broughton Knox's article on the church, the churches and the denominations of the churches is the place where he uh, looks into Matthew 16 and, and argues that it refers to Jesus gathering his church around himself, the rock. It was first published in Reformed Theological Review in 1989 and also reprinted in the Selected Works of Broughton Knox, Volume 2, Church and Ministry, edited by Kirsten Burkett, uh, published by Matthias Media in 2003. You might also, uh, just as an interesting aside, check out Simon Sinek's little book, Start With Why. Um, he argues pretty strongly that whenever you're thinking about any organisation or activity, you should start with why and only then proceed to what and how, or to how and what. Um, it's a it's an enjoyable little book. I, I don't read many business books or leadership book, books, but I, I quite enjoyed this one. It's one of those classic ones, though, where it has one simple, excellent point to make. That is that a clear, powerful why will inspire your whole team to action much better than how or what. But there's so many interminable stories about Apple and Walmart and all these other kind of business case studies that kind of feel the whole book could have been about a quarter of its length. But anyway, you can skim past those stories and all the other padding, uh, and it's a useful read. should take you no more than an hour if you do it that way. Well, that's about it from me for this week. Thanks for being with me once again. And uh, let me just encourage you, if you haven't subscribed yet to The Painful Truth, just zip across to thepainfultruth.online and you can do that. Well, I'm Tony Payne. Thanks so much for listening again this week. Bye for now. Thank you.